Welcome to the Optimalist Podcast, where we examine just what it takes to ensure humans flourish in the age of AI. I'm Sarah, your host through this exploration of mindfulness, attention, focus, and motivation, all elements of human flourishing. So how do we cultivate them? This week, I am joined by psychotherapist and performance coach, Tara Miller. Tara brings together over a decade of experience in clinical practice and trauma therapy for all ages with the neuroscience of advanced level self-regulation therapy training to write, speak, present, and coach on nervous system strategies for resilience. Listen as Tara and I discuss metacognitive functions, the work of creating your own identity, and of course, the nervous system. We're so glad you're here for today's conversation. I hate that I'm an expert on grief and loss, but I I am well-practiced in this process. Mm-hmm. And I mean, grief's a funny thing and, and loss, it, it envelops the whole room. It tags everybody in to come play. It tags your past. It tags your future and then the moment of whatever your emotions are. So it's very organic and biological and very physical. So to go through it, I, I just don't stifle any of it. I don't try and restrain it. I don't try and negotiate it with it. I just sit in my body and feel it and, and, and go through the waves of it and know that from my past, it does get better. The waves start to settle. Um, but honoring the depth of love that you have for a person, or in this case, a pet, is I would never want to shortchange myself of that, even though it's painful. So right. I've really been in my body and I'm listening to it and I'm tired. So I'm resting and I took some days off and I'm just kind of very, very present. And I think animals are so great at reminding us of how to be present mm-hmm. that I'm kind of channeling my dog. Like, how yeah. would he go through? day and and appreciate nature and and appreciate the time that we had and it's been very very soothing for me to just slow the pace down and i think we should do that in any high stress overwhelming traumatic situation is slow the pace down listen to what your physical body is asking of you and just give yourself the time to honor that process so that's been my last 4 days I love that you're saying that animals bring us into the present, especially dogs. Um, it's something that when I got, uh, I have two older dogs as well. And one of them in particular, when I got her, she's 13, I guess. And I had her um, when she was about four or five months and never having had a dog before of my own. And being that she was so young, I took it and she's a hunting dog and I really took it to myself to become an expert in like, how do you train a dog to, I got her to hike and be very independent with me. And I wanted her to be off leash and all these things. And it was like, really learning that connection of, um, you know, they are there for you. Like they wouldn't be there in your, you know, everything, everything in their life revolves around what you're doing in this moment. Um, That's right. And, and yeah. like, there is nothing. And we wonder, like, we get annoyed at like, living in like a modern home environment with them and like they bark when you leave or they do this when you don't want them to. And it's like, it's because their whole world is present with what you're doing at this moment. Um, And like, you have to really alter yourself to that rather than always thinking that they should be altering to you. 
And I think that's For really sure. humbling when you're training a dog because it's supposed to teach you about that. Well, and they, you know, we are animals and they are animals. They respond to our nervous system and our energy yeah. first and most. And so we can learn a lot about ourselves from how our dogs are behaving. And I think um, when you're a dog owner and you dive into learning about the breed of that dog and what it, what it needs, what it's going to take to thrive, mm -hmm. it teaches us about how we can connect with other people, how we connect with ourselves and our own needs. It's such a collaborative process. We have life with the dog that we learn and can apply to anything else. And I think that's why there's such a loss too, mm -hmm. because especially like pandemic and then post pandemic and working from home, you know, I spent more time with that dog in 10 years of his life than really anybody. I know. So I have the same the feeling. Yeah. And the vacancy of his energy and his joy and all of the best things of life that he showed up with every day so effortlessly, it's such a lesson in like, oh, I wish I could be more like my dog was, but also would avoid that, uh, that leaves in this space for sure. Yes. And they only want, um, <laughs> I don't mean to say only as if it's nothing, but they only want your attention. And that also makes me think about when she was a puppy, when my scout was a puppy and she was the first dog and I'm learning even about like little things like walking and like equipment and learning that the leash, um, just what you were saying about the behavior and the connection between the human and the animal, that the people don't realize the way you hold your leash is directly affecting the behavior of the dog as they walk. And so if you are anxious and stressed and you are putting tension Half on walk. that leash... <laughs> like it immediately goes, you could have the calmest dog in the world. But if you are feeling whatever you're feeling is, is um, running through that line from you to them, they're gonna, they're gonna act appropriately. So I do think 100%. that it's so, oh my gosh, it's so worth it to put in the effort to learn about that as especially if you're if you're getting a dog that needs extra care. But you did mention at the beginning of this, uh, of this starting conversation about being an expert in grief and related topics. And I'm wondering if that is something that you have always, like, has that always been your path or is that a recent, um, a more recent expertise or regardless of the answer to that, what has influenced your path as to what you are focused on right now in your work? I think the the grief expert label that I won't want to <laughs> I won't want to wear like a sign. Probably stumbled into it at some point. I, I would stumbled think. into it. I yeah. remember traumatic uh, deaths early on in in my adolescence with friends, and then you, as as in life, you experience death. And for me, the the expertise of of really huge loss occurred um, once when my ex husband committed suicide, and then three years later when really the love of my life died in a motorcycle accident. So there was back-to-back -back very profound um, losses and, and, and a life of raising kids on my own. And it was just a, this test of extreme test of resilience. Wow. And in moving through some of that and a couple of car accidents and a couple of other things that happened, I just discovered this really, I had to, to dive in and tap into the deepest level of human survival 
resiliency that I that I could find. And, you know, in the darkness of our lives, sometimes that's where we discover that we have we do have more in the tank and we have more uh, to survive the, the travesties of our life. So um, from there and recovering and moving through those traumatic experiences and those difficult times of life, I fell into um, self-regulation therapy, which then ended up becoming a career as I shifted gears, uh, became a, a counselor, got my master's degree, and then trained in self-regulation therapy, which was all about regulating the nervous system so that you can recover from events in your life and come back down to a real healthy baseline so that you can do it again because life has a way of throwing stuff at us. So it was kind of that turn midlife that moved me into a different path and over 10 years of clinical work helping other people through their traumas. And when you work with people, I know you do work with educators directly or with students directly. What What is the... Um... So I did both. I ran okay. uh, groups for girls on resiliency in elementary and middle schools for a while early on in my career. I worked with uh, the Elizabeth Fry Society and worked with um, kids that had been victims of sexual assault. And then when the pandemic hit, I shut down my private practice. I didn't want to do clinical work like that anymore, the hour to hour, how, however many people you could see in a day, because I knew that going forward, it was all going to be pandemic trauma for a really long time. And I was going through it myself and helping my family through it. So I shifted gears and, and moved into more of a consultant role and into a speaker um, educator role. And in and during the pandemic, when teachers were really, um, they were really going through it and the masking and all of the, the drama and trauma that happened in the middle of it, I did some um, educational series and webinars for some of the teaching groups for the support staff and the teachers for how to manage their own nervous systems, how to really find ways to to settle and calm so that they could impact the people that they work with and the students coming in and how they could be really a safe, calm, supportive space while they supported each other going through that. So that's where the transition moved as far as frontline workers and teachers during that time. Um, which I continue to do alongside other basically leaders in any industry. So I guess that kind of combines the question I was going to ask before that kind of makes it a little bit more clear. But in your work with teachers and students or anyone in the education system, really during the pandemic time or coming out of the pandemic, are you finding, because I know you're mentioning a lot of working working with people on nervous system regulation when it comes to trauma, but are you finding that um, you could uncover that people's baseline is pretty low to begin with, trauma or not? Um, I'm not sure if that's something that you could really navigate being in the middle of all of this, but um, what's your assessment there? I would say higher baseline, which means lower resilience. It okay. means you're already cooking in a fight or flight state to some degree. And I think that was, that became such a chronic state that teachers were in and had to be in as they went day, th day in and out through all of that, 
And it's a profession that's so demanding anyway, emotionally and mentally, and does require some nervous system support mm-hmm. and some really good management regardless. So, you know, and there's, there's a high burnout percentage for this profession. So high demand, high burnout, they were, they're already at a higher baseline, most of them, because of the quality of the environment that they work in. And I think the pandemic for teachers and students filled up their containers even more, which means that they're, it's harder for them to get to a really nice, cool baseline where they feel kind of neutral. They feel that, that homeostasis, that, that balance. So I, I definitely saw an issue in the beginning because that's just the nature of the work. But then I think it's gotten, it's gotten elevated and I think it's harder for people to let down now. When I talk to current educators on this show or even, even beyond that, um, outside of here, it's, you know, it seems, and I was a teacher for 14 years. And so I feel it deep in my soul when I talk to people about these issues, but it, it has, it becomes and never goes away. This, I, this idea of, um, this feeling that teachers have of rushing through every moment of their day. And when they take on more things, even small things, like as a day goes on or a week goes on, like the feeling of being overwhelmed begins to feel is, it's almost like that is that they expect that to be the normal. Yes, give me that. Sure, I can talk to this kid. Okay, add that meeting. And people, while they, of course, know that the feeling probably isn't isn't right and they shouldn't feel that way, I think teachers have been almost trained to think that that it's their job to be overwhelmed by yeah. like, that. That is that is the job. Um, like you're going to have a lot to do, and it's always going to get. There's always going to be more. And we know that, I mean, you could literally start working at 8 a.m. and not stop until 8 p.m. and still feel like there's more to do. And so as part of the work that you do, like how much is is also teaching people to to let go of some of that? Or is it or is a lot of it in once once they start to make a, a routine of regulation and awareness and presence does it start to feel like a lot of what they're they're already trying to handle is manageable? Or maybe it's both. Well, I think there's, uh, I mean, initially, my first response is our brains become addicted to the state that we spend the most time in. So if you exist in a day-to-day that is activating that, it, that where your nervous system has that sense of hypervigilance and readiness to respond and, and, the expectation of workload, it's going to become addicted to that where it feels like that's normal and will seek it when it is not present because we're drawn to familiarity. It uses fewer brain resources. So we have to be careful about what we become accustomed to because you're right. The the new normal isn't a good normal. As animals, we are supposed to have a response and come back to, to a really um, parasympathetic, relaxed, calm, neutral state. And teachers don't get to visit or revisit that state very often throughout the day. So there is that piece of it. Then there's the piece of we are contagious. Our nervous systems are contagious. We change a room, whether it's our colleagues, our principal, or the children. We change the room when we enter it before we say anything because that's how transmissible it is. So 
a lot of the work I do is about helping teachers become aware of the state that they're operating in most of the time, and then identifying what would be a better state if they knew they were influencing the room. What would be a better state to go into that room with? So the awareness, learning how to be intentional about how you go into a room, and then some tools to help either bring your state down or bring your state up. Because the other part of it is if you're already in burnout, it's you're almost you're you're almost in that hypo state, that mm-hmm. hypo, you know, almost depressed, but kind of low energy. It's really hard to bring yourself up and out. So wherever you are, it's important to know on an hour to hour basis, what state am I in right now? What state do I really want to be in or what state do I need to be in to do whatever this next period is or to do what this next meeting is? And then learning how to manipulate your nervous system to get there. And then the lifestyle pieces, a lot of teachers find it refreshing to know that, you know, like bubble baths and tea parties are not going to cut it. The self-care, just take care of yourself or do a yoga class. It's not enough for this profession. So there is dramatic kind of lifestyle adjustments that need to be made outside of um, your work and then finding ways to transition into it. And being aware of how your state responds to each. And sometimes that means people are not in the right school. They're not in the right age range. They're not in the right environment. And they need to make changes because it's going to affect their health long term. And so when you introduce, um, I'll ask you about any specifics that you're doing momentarily. But when you introduce this kind of these changes or routine or this this kind of lifestyle that they would have to adopt or even just talking about or introducing nervous system regulation in general um how much do you meet resistance from teachers do you feel like they don't necessarily think that it's going to work or that they i don't like how how responsive are they to what you're trying to do before they start to feel the effects The resistance I get across the board from any profession usually comes from people that have been doing this so long that it's their entire identity. And it's very threatening to offer somebody an alternative to something they've created as their own identity. So if it's being a workaholic, if it's being an overthinker, if it's being someone with anxiety, if it's, you know, whatever that piece of identity is it becomes threatening to the nervous system to try and adjust it. So that's where I get the resistance from. Most people, yeah. And most people, they, they have an identity as a teacher in the classroom, but they also have other pieces of their life that they draw on that form the fullness of who they are. And they just have, you know, that growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. They have an openness to try something new and they know it's not going to be the end of the world if it works. And they know it's not <laughs> going to be the end of as it work. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's good to know. That and that leads to just my neck. I, I feel like I'm being way more question answer than I normally am today, but I'm so interested in little specifics about about how people work with you um and how you work with them. But so that brings me to my next question, which is how do you then branch into them helping their students, or I'm, I'm assuming those that are also, if you're working with teachers and they're also parents, they might also be thinking about how they can apply this to their home life or to their own stu- own kids. Um, so how does that how does that bridge happen? Um, you're working with educators first, and then are they then are you teaching them 
methods to bring to a younger population or how to manage a classroom? Or are you also then working with the kids with them? I'm mostly working with the teachers and then they bring those practices too. So when a teacher learns how to regulate their nervous system, which means they're checking in with their physical body, that's where you get the first cues of the state that you're in. And then we work to manipulate that state, which is I'm feeling anxious today. And I know this because my breath is shallow and I have tension in my shoulders or I'm tight in my jaw. We just notice those physical cues. And we find another place in the body where things feel relatively more comfortable, or we find a place where breath moves easily all by itself without trying to change it. We're just kind of sitting as a witness, and then something will shift. So if I say, where do you notice feeling support from the chair, bringing awareness right to where your the back of your legs meets the chair, getting a sense of the weight of just that space. I'm redirecting the brain to a place that isn't activated. And the brain doesn't care if it's real or imaginary, if it's past, present, or future. It will go where I tell it to go. And then when it goes to a place that feels comfortable and supported, it will change my biology. So as it changes their biology, I'll be able to see it. I'll see that their breath has changed. I'll see that their shoulders drop. And I'll bring awareness to that. What do you notice in the rest of your body by noticing how you feel in the chair. So it's just that body awareness piece that helps them go, oh, I'm charged up. Now I'm, I'm aware of that. Right. And this is how can, I can go into parasympathetic and, and regulate in a moment. And so it seems like you are incorporating a lot of that sensory, you know, sensory it's, awareness. It's all sensory. Yeah. The language of the nervous system is the felt sense. So we mm-hmm. go there first. And then because the brain doesn't care past, present, or future, we can use imagination, memory, visualization to also increase regulation in in the nervous system. And that's a piece that when they're working with children, they can help kids bring awareness to their breath. They can help kids feel their butt in the chair or feel their butt on an exercise ball um, and kind of ground into their own body, feel their feet flat on the floor and would wiggle their toes. Those techniques will help kids start to regulate. But you can also use imagination um, with them, especially because kids are so great at it. Yeah. In helping change their state. So if everybody's kind of like right before Christmas holidays and bouncing off the walls, you can play a game depending on the age of let's imagine that we're sloths and we have to kind of move through mud and this mud is really thick. And you can have them do it physically, but you can have them imagine it. And the imagination is the fastest route. When you move the body, it's secondary. It still has an impact, but you can connect the imagination of a sloth going through mud and you'll physically be able to see their nervous systems adjust just by playing that that game. So you can adjust it to whatever state that you need the room to be. And you can play with imagination or even memory. Like, do you remember when we did this assembly and what it was like to see this or to do that? Or when we played this game and it was so exciting, you can wind people up or down according to what your needs are based on helping their brain navigate through time, basically, and through their bodies. So when we talk about the brain-body connection is what you're saying, the brain usually is what comes first and where the movement is second. 
secondary kind of. Right. It's always better to notice breath because yeah. it's a function the body does all by itself. Right. Then it is to try and change the breathing. So you can have impact by both, but the most effective regulating system for all of us is our breath. Our body knows how to do it all by itself. We want to find a place where it does it perfectly all by itself and notice it. And then it will deepen and lengthen all on its own just by witnessing it, which is much faster than trying to remember the counts or the box breathing or some of these other things. Those can be effective also, but just noticing the breath and really paying attention to it um, goes into that part of the survival brain that regulates fastest. Which is why the recognition of breath is typically the center of a good meditation system, right? We're noticing yeah. the breath and then it literally brings you to your center and you can lose yourself in that just literally paying attention to or listening to your own breath. And you're right, it does deepen as you over time as it or lengthen, as you said. I'm also thinking like at what, well, first of all, like, so say you were going to start tomorrow with a with a new group of teachers, I guess it could be anybody. What is a typical length that you like, what's the length of time that you work with people where you that, that it takes for them to get to a place where they f can kind of do this on their own, or they feel like they can build a routine comfortably? What does that look like? It well, and it depends on the person and what else, because it's really not what's what they're showing. It's not what's happening in the moment. It's what they're showing up with that they brought from right. the rest of their life. Right, right. So um, it's very individual. Some people who are relatively resilient and healthy, they have healthy practices, establishing joy and meaning outside of their work. You know, they'll take a one hour session where there's a little bit of the education piece and the science behind this. And then there's a little bit of practice. And they'll go do it and notice a difference right away. Most people have what I would consider a breakthrough where it's like, I practiced this or I did this and two to four weeks in of doing this once a week, I noticed a huge shift. I noticed it started getting easier. I noticed I wasn't reactive to things I normally would react to or that my reaction was a lot more diminished than it had been before. So they notice a sense of having a little more control over um, how they respond to things, but also a little more balance in how they perceive them. I love that. I'm thinking about my mind just kind of went in a few different directions when you were saying that because I'm thinking about myself and the breakthroughs. I mean, when you do practice these things over, you know, a long length of time, you have many breakthroughs that you know, as you reach different levels of awareness, um, uh, which is what one of the things we talk about the most on this show. Um, and so my other question there is, what role does reflection, if any, play in this process when you're working with people? Do you have a reflection piece, whether it's written or mental or in a group or an individual, where people are thinking about what they what they feel and and what they are bringing to the process and what they what they're getting out of it as they go along. I don't bring in anything formal. It's it's part of the conversation where we talk about how is this different than it than it was before, or what do you notice that's different than it was three weeks ago. 
the awareness piece, it's just being aware of this is the state that I'm in and I have control over it. I can manipulate it. I can influence it. I can make it better on demand when I learn how to do these things. And that makes my family life better. It makes my work life better. It makes my classroom better. Um, it's just this idea of having awareness of what's going on in your own body and being able to change it so that you feel like you have more, I don't want to use the word control in a bad way, but you have more control how you show up in your life in every way. So it never just impacts the classroom. It impacts your relationships, your coworkers, your family, because it becomes a part of you're changing your brain to give out energy and participate in a way that is more has more space for you to respond appropriately, accordingly, and also recover really well. Right. And then it becomes part of who you are. And that that whole cycle of, you know, that where recovery becomes a big part of it is is now part of your life. And I we like you're mentioning the word control. I think we we like to use management a lot. Like we'll say, are you able to manage your attention or your awareness or um, because it can feel like we don't want it to feel like we're saying you have to force something, but right. but we do want you at the same time. You don't want to soften it too much because we want you to realize that you do you do have some sort of power, even though it feels like often that's that it's so easy for that to be at a loss or completely. And I think I think using soft words during critical times can do a disservice. Because I agree. Sometimes we need to really be honest and raw about, you know, this is the time in my life I need to be powerful. I am designed moments of powerful and victory and being in these hyper-confident states. It's good for me to have this level of elevation and be able to come down. I think there's a risk in neutralizing things and softening them so much that we have, you know, a little bit of a better day. And then oh, we're fine. And then, oh, I'm a little <laughs> sad, but no, I'm fine. And, like life is big and, and the range is big. And so the goal is to increase our range so that I can have a really great day and um, I can have a really crappy day and I can always recover. But there is a, a bigness to my life that is okay and something that I can accept and bring in and encourage and and not have watered down. I love that idea. I, I say that I, I don't say it super often, but I, I think I think it more than I say it out loud. But calling like calling and recognizing that potential for bigness in your life. And I think about when I when I want to apply any of this to the way you might think about managing a classroom and how important a piece it is in an educate, especially in the younger grades in an educator's life to make sure students understand that they the potential in any way that they possibly have and what what better way is there to increase that awareness for what you are capable of as one individual human you know growing up in this world than to than to increase your capacity to kind of regulate and manage these really difficult emotions um and not just emotions but the things that happen to you or come at you from the outside that you likely cannot expect or understand, um, but you can be better prepared or ready to accept them. And what better way to really model that? I, I think, too, there's a focus on there's so many students and there's 
all of this stuff. And I just need to manage the energy of this classroom and keep it in this narrow band. But what great way to model how life really works in that you can get really big with enthusiasm and winning and whatever that looks like and excitement about things. And then you can teach them how to bring that back down to like, and this is how Like, how do we feel different in our bodies when we need to show empathy or when somebody is sad or when the kindness is needed or when, you know, somebody has a headache and we have to be really quiet or mindful or, you know, like to be able to explore states with kids in the classroom, they might not be getting it outside of it, depending on what's going on in their family life. So to be able to know that we can explore and experience great joy at school as part of learning in our states. And then we can play with how to bring it down a notch and how to bring it down all the way to the bottom and how to bring it, you know, um, being able to model that and then teach it is something that encourages that expansiveness, that range versus, you know, the, the trying to keep them in a lower band or in a more manageable space space. If right. they practice this, they're easier to bring into a calmer, more focused state because they've had the chance to let some of it out. And they've also had the chance to learn, you know, and it's building their brain about how to inhibit when it's appropriate and how to bring things down when you need to. That's essential for most stages of development that's in education right now is to learn the value of all of that movement. I love that. And I love... um really, it really forces you as an adult or as the educator in the situation to really not fall into this, I guess, this this path that can present itself where we do want to shade younger people from everything, maybe not everything, but the things that we feel like they are going to really struggle with emotionally. And that can be hard to not do, um, especially when you have 30 you know, 30 of them in one room looking to you for for every sort of guidance, academic and otherwise. And so how do you, um, you know, learning, I, that's why when you mention modeling, that's what I talk to people a lot in about in my work, like modeling this and learning how, learning how to focus your attention, like even even just bringing your attention to your body, like the simple things that you can do as as an adult individual human to learn how to, you know, then you don't even wind up thinking of it as modeling. I think over time, it just becomes, this is how you walk the earth and other people. I'm going to go into this space and I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to be regulated. But today the goal is to bring joy into this space. Mm -hmm. And when was the last time I remember doing that so well? If we had a moment that we remembered earlier in our career where we felt joy in what we did, and we think about that right before we walk into the classroom, we start that process already without even doing any work. Right. And it shouldn't be, you're making me think of one other thing there, like, because I remember doing this as a teacher too, like, it, it can't just be masking, like when you're in front of the classroom, masking that you're so busy and crazy and frazzled and then like putting on this joyful look because kids know that too. They will get that eventually like you can't do that day after day after day and week after week without that coming through. It's not about like hiding the crazy part behind like in your desk and then teaching and then and then going back to being crazy in between classes. It's about literally changing your whole system. And otherwise, you're not actually joyful. 
Um, and then what exactly. it's not really bringing anything good to anybody to just be, it's not just putting on this happy face. It's actually changing your, your whole life. You're getting right. me excited because this is what I want people to experience. <laughs> it's always so exciting when I talk about it with somebody like yourself. And that actually brings me to one more question. I know like I'm looking at the time here and I, we, we need to start winding down. And I, I'm, this is what happens. Like I get into the second half or like the third, like the third part. And I, um, we start to get into a lot of topics that I wish I could explore, but we are running out of time. But I wanted to just ask a little bit about if you noticed that there is a role in any part of this work that you do that you have seen um, made more difficult by the existence of social media in people's life. I think kids in general, their their life becomes more about comparison to something that isn't real. And they already struggle more to differentiate what's real and what's not real. So I think I think social media has uh, had huge impact. That being said, it's not going away. Right. So, you know, how can we help kids learn what's real, what's not real and, and create people and an existence for them that is more desirable to live in than what's through the screen. And I think that's a big challenge that needs probably a lot more attention in, in those developmental ages. Yeah. And, and this is coming off of, I, I don't know how, how many people listening, even um, if everybody knows this yet, but coming off of just last week, we have renamed and rebranded the product that creates this whole inspiration for this podcast and all the work we do at The Optimalist. So we used to be called Focusable. Um, that was our software. And now we've just renamed to Engageable. And with this idea that we have the same, it's the same thing and we everything kind of works the same way that it did before, but we really are thinking deeply about this idea of engaging better with the life in front of us and how we can use consistent practice of better attention to do so. So how can we use practicing better attention to give us that energy? We say it's the pulse of energy you need um, when you think about what it is that you have in front of you and how you can be more engaged as a person rather than looking to other people and things to engage you. Like what's the difference between being someone who is engageable and being someone who kind of is passively waiting to be engaged? And I think that's something that the now what, 10, 15 years of of the prevalence of things like social media in our lives really has had to has to teach us, right? We can't keep living outside of ourselves and doing a disservice. And that, to me, really hurts the nervous system. For me, it does. It really numbs it out because mm-hmm. it, it it's not just passive, but it's giving chemical hits without a true experience. And so, you know, I I would love to see what brain imaging looks like, you know, from age three to age 20, if somebody started right now, because... I think it's going to look different. And I know that we already engage with others differently and it becomes really easy to hide behind. Um, and so we don't feel the impact of things either. Negative things that we're supposed to feel the impact of, we don't because they've become neutralized through the screen and we don't have the positive impact either. So, so much work for parents 
and teachers and everybody in this world really needs to go into how can we create experiences in real life that are engaging and meaningful and lighting up the brain and creating positive connections and interactions the way that nature intended <laughs> we're competing against. Right. Well, like I said, this I could now branch off into five other topics here in this conversation. I feel like I, I've just been so excited to have with you today, Tara. But speaking of real experiences, um, I think that's a perfect way to segue into the last section of this conversation. And I did want to give you a, a quick like few seconds space to maybe if you want to speak directly to a lot of the a lot of people listening to this podcast at this moment at this is episode 12 are educators and parents. And so maybe if you did want to give like a quick tip or something that people could jumpstart this work on their own if they wanted to do it tomorrow or like even thinking of like it's summer now for us all. So what can either a teacher or a parent do for themselves to over the summer, like really, if we're thinking of ourselves becoming a model and they're and they want to work on themselves while they are away from the school space, like what could what could we do tomorrow to get that started? I think what's important in especially for the summer, and I hadn't really considered it considered it in terms of summer, but it's a good time to not just rest but to engage in something new. Um, the brain really loves to be a beginner. And to work through something that you kind of suck at in the beginning. So you get the benefit of humility along with, you know, kind of progress and it, it lights up the brain. It gives it extra BDNF to like fertilize the connections. It's really powerful against depression. It helps to regulate. It's a good, healthy distraction. I would say think of something that you used to love to do that you have stopped doing for whatever reason or time and jump back into it or think of something that you've always wanted to do and never tried and start there. Um, get into new environments. Um, learn to get your brain activated for not the familiar because it wants to stay in what's familiar and yes. we want to move it into growth. So look for things that are playful and are fun and that bring you joy and that are brand new so that you're engaging in life in the way that you're supposed to engage in life, not just taking the rest. The rest in recovery is important, but you still want to make sure that when you're in a rest or recovery time, that you're looking for how to re-engage in your life outside of your work in ways that are going to light you up. Right. And that the, the, everything is a cycle. We call things a cycle for a reason, right? Like the, they, we can't remain in one of these states for too long or forever. We have to learn how to recognize and be aware of when we move to the next one. No, that's uh, that's totally it. It is, you know, we're in flow all the time. So you want to bring awareness to it, but you also want to make sure that you're, you're moving yourself into that. Like how, if I'm going to be a model for how to live life in expansion, in the full range of what I was put here for, how am I starting to do that? in the time off that I have where it's not as challenging from a time pressure to do so. Yeah, I love that. Let's talk a little bit about as we wrap up, maybe what it is that you are bringing into taking into your brain these days, Tara, so we can get a little uh, sense of the overall 
picture of who you are um, outside, even maybe a little outside of this work. So if there's anything that you are reading or listening to or watching, any or all of those, we'd love to to learn what it is that you're thinking about these days. Sure. One book that my friend recommended that I'm loving is called Hagitude, and it is geared for women sort of middle age and up. Mm-hmm. But what is really beautiful about it is she brings in a lot of um, history and Celtic stories. Her storytelling is really, really so nice. And it's so honoring of women going through whatever we're going through in life. And so it's a book that has been delightful in how she is uses. It's, I'm listening to it, actually. So it's her accent kind of um, storytelling through women in history and different things. Um, that's been really uh, delightful. The other, because I'm trying to get away from all of the like business and education and yeah. self-focus. So this was something lighter. What I'm watching is I just wrapped up Ted Lasso. Who, Yay. Uh, had a rough couple of um, seasons. seasons I agree. There. Yeah. But the last one I thought was really nice. And what I love about the the package of that is, and the story is, there was a lot of movement of emotions in addition to humor, in addition to kind of the best that we can bring to relationships. I thought it was so well done and refreshing and it made me feel good. So I don't uh, engage in things that don't make me feel good in my yeah. downtime. So. No, I totally agree. I found it hard to engage with, uh, to really care about Ted Lasso in the second season, but I do like how you just said the best we can bring to relationships because that is the that is the crux of what I have always liked about it from the beginning. Although I do think the storytelling was better in season one, but um, but yes, the relationships and how we treat each other and how we treat ourselves, I think, is the core of that show. Definitely, absolutely, yeah. Okay. The well, lastly of of something new. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done a lot of new things in this year. One of the new things that I've done, and it makes me sound like an old lady, but <laughs> um, this place I moved into um, has a lot of birds and I put bird feeders up. And so I have a wider variety of birds visiting than I've ever noticed before. And now I want to identify them and I'm listening to their sounds. So I'm very, being very present in nature. It's also something that my old dog and I used to do every morning. So now it's this ritual that I really love. So I'm not going out there. I don't have binoculars or a field guide yet. But yeah, <laughs> like not a full bird watcher. But-, but it's on your own property. So that's like such a great addition. It's easy to build into a routine. I totally get that. And that's funny that you mentioned that because now I don't have this so much. I just moved myself. But where I used to live in Los Angeles, there was a park that I would hike with my dogs several times a week because it was so close. But while they were kind of running off leash, there's all these little trees and so many different birds out here than I was used to on the East Coast. And I just become obsessed um, with watching birds that I didn't grow up seeing, like all different colors. And um, so I, I think about that all the time because I'm not near a park like that right now. But I was in a cab in New York because I was in New York over the weekend. I was in a cab over the weekend and... uh or I was going to the airport, actually, and my driver was talking to me about where I was going and living in Los Angeles and being from New York. And 
And there was a silence in the conversation. And out of nowhere, you would never expect this. He just goes, how's the bird watching scene? <laughs> Isn't that so crazy? I was like, oh, that is I'm like, crazy. wow, you got the right passenger because I can talk to you about L.A. birds and trees for the next 20 minutes if you want. It's so funny. I think, too, when I was in my practice and I was raising my kids, I missed I was in nature, you know, like because I had to walk the dogs or do whatever. I didn't I wasn't really in it. I wasn't really in nature. Right. I wasn't really praying. And so now that my, you know, the kids have moved out and I'm kind of on my own just with now one dog, there is a different appreciation and, and more space to notice and really be in nature. And I'm noticing how grounding it is, how instantly regulating it is, how much in awe of it I am. And that the more I'm aware of, the more comes to me. So it is kind of this, it's almost spiritual what's happened in the last really few months in coming into this place of I can be present and ground in a very different way just by being way more in nature and actually being able to sit in it because I'm not um, so much frenzy of life like I used to have. Yes. And I talk to people about um, using elements of nature of your natural surroundings, like even just a short walk somewhere through anything, to, uh, ele using elements in nature to ground yourself to the to the life in front of you, to reality and to work on your attention. Like literally, it could be watching or looking at things like birds. But even if you're in movement, like walking as you walk, looking at the leaves as you pass and looking for the detail, looking at like Absolutely. the bark of a tree, like it really is when I do that every once in a while, it's kind of miraculous what it immediate, like you were saying before, it changes your brain and your biology pretty quickly. You can feel it. Um, but it really doing a little bit of that every day. I think they say, I think it's like what up to like 12 minutes a day really is all it takes to work on your attention to the point where it changes you. Yeah, it's not much. And they found, uh, with women especially that a very short time in nature induced a really nice, uh, quick parasympathetic response. So even just using that as, as medicine is, is valuable. And I know also when I'm in nature, there's a tendency to, instead of being focused down on a screen or on my desk or whatever, my head is up. And so I'm noticing the skyline. I'm noticing, you know, I'm traveling and I'm by the ocean. I'm noticing the vastness of everything else and how really small and relatively insignificant I am. Right. That does change my perception of my struggles or my challenges or my deficits or what I'm working on. It, the breadth of what's out here and what we're living in, that perspective shift is pretty instant if you let it be. And then also to kind of end that thought, what that does in my mind, it also primes you for more and better connections with other people um, sure. when you feel when you are more grounded and connected to yourself. Their nervous system will read you as being safe. If you're regulated, you don't come in front of people as with their animal brain thinking you're a predator. You're you're safe. So you instantly have reduced defenses and the ability to connect easier. And I think that's a great way to end. Um you know, I think this episode where we're trying to talk a little bit more about how, like, in a practical way, teachers can think about being like working on their own regulation, being models of this for kids and how to work on it with them. But um, with the ultimate goal, I think that everybody wants to build a more 
manageable, connected community within the classroom and the school itself. And I, I'm always talking about how how we need to work and start on an individual level first, um, no matter what it is that we're doing. So Tara, where can people find you if they want to engage with you or connect with you or ask you any questions? Where where would you welcome people connecting with you? I would say right now, the best place to go is probably braincoach.co. And they can also find me on Instagram at Tara Shriek. And you are not a Twitter user is what I have learned. <laughs> That's where I live. You know what? It's (laughs) funny that you mentioned that because this morning I'm like, I'm kind of tired of these other places. Maybe I'll go to Twitter. I (laughs) actually, I retweeted something on Twitter and was like, maybe I'll come back to Twitter. I think I found you there like a few months ago um, because I mostly interact with you through LinkedIn where you post (laughs) these beautiful things and I read them, (laughs) all of them like every every day. They're so consistent. Um, and, uh, they always align almost perfectly with what it is that I'm thinking or doing at the moment. And that's why I've been so insistent on having you on because I, I know that what you're doing is going to speak to everything that we're doing and everything that our audience is looking to work on and just hear more people talk about it in the way that you do. So, and LinkedIn's a great place to find me too. I, I kind of give most of my thoughts or expertise on posts and LinkedIn more than anywhere else. Yeah. And well, yeah, that's a great forum for it because you can write longer there. But yeah, this is a time when everyone's like thinking, should I jump off of Twitter? But Tara is going to be on it, everybody. So don't leave yet. <laughs> Let's get her on there um, interacting with us a little bit. But okay, cool. Well, I'm hoping that this conversation has inspired people to reach out or I, I would love to. I always say sometimes like when I have specific types of conversations. I'm always like tweet out things that you like or or because t- a lot of uh, the people that listen are also interacting on Twitter or Instagram in some way. So let us know what you liked or what you found useful in this conversation. If you did wind up trying something on your own or over the summer, whatever the case may be. And um, Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been really great, really great to hear your voice and to be present with you. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you gained as much from listening to Tara as I did from speaking with her. From the beginning, the way she talks about grounding yourself and finding presence in your body through every emotion and experience is so important to reflect on regarding your own way of moving about the world. You can let us know what you think by leaving a comment on Substack, a review in Apple Podcasts, and you can reach me on Twitter at scandela 9 You can listen and subscribe to the Optimalist Podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and links to all of the resources here are available in the show notes. The Optimalist Podcast is brought to you by Engageable, the only app that gives you the mindful pulse you need for better attention. And it's free. Create an account today at getengageable.com or by downloading Engageable on any iOS or Android device. You can also follow us at Get Engageable on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist. I'll be back next week with a new conversation. Stay engaged.